This program is brought to you by Bobbleway Media, under the oversight of the elders of the Chipman Road Congregation in Lee Summit, Missouri. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program. This is Don Boyd. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to continue our studies today in the book of Romans, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. You know, the justification of mankind is a a matter that we must know in order to better understand what Romans 5 is talking about. When we understand what justification is, then we will better understand what is being discussed here in Romans chapter 5. So when you look at the word justification, it has a definition of counting a person as being righteous Or if you want to use the word justification, it could mean just as if I had never sinned. And that would be a good word to help remember the, or definition to remember the word justified. So why is our justification necessary? Well, that is because we are guilty of sin that we freely choose to commit. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, 23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So in order to escape that spiritual death, we must be justified. And sin alienates us from God. If you look at Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, again Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So sin not only causes us to have eternal punishment, but sin alienates us from God as well. And our justification is necessary because of the perfect justice of God. When you look in Psalm 51, verse 4, Psalm 51, verse 4, David there said, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. You see, God had to provide the perfect plan for us to be justified or made righteous. So we need to ask the question then, why? Why does God justify the ungodly? Well, we find in John three sixteen and 17, it's because of his great love for mankind. John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. So God wants us to be justified, and that's why he has given us his plan for our salvation. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it states there, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that is why God would want us to be justified and Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 1 Timothy 1.15 states, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You go back and look at Paul's life before he was converted to Christ. He was one who was persecuting the church. He was held the clothes of those who murdered Stephen there, stoning him to death. And he was doing many things against the church prior to his conversion. And Jesus changed places with us by taking our sins upon him by being God's sin offering. Now we find that in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. It says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So it is only through the blood of Christ that we can be reconciled to God, and that would be also with our obedient faith. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Corinthians 5.21, Paul wrote, For he, that being God the Father, hath made him, that being Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So again, Jesus Christ came and died for us so that we do not have to face the penalty of sin. So now the next question is, how? How does God justify us? Well, he justifies us through our obedience to the gospel. Back in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 16, Romans 1, 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And also, how does God justify us? Through faith. We look in the book of James, in James chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 24 and 26. James 2, 24 states, You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. So we are justified, yes, faith justifies us, but we are justified by works also. And in verse 26 of James 2, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So it shows us there that we're not justified just through faith, but also through our works. We are also justified by our confession. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, Romans 10, 9 and 10 state, 
that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So confession is also part of our justification. Repentance of sin also is part of that justification. In Acts 17.30, Acts 17.30, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So we see then that there must be faith, there must be obedient faith, obeying that. We must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and live our lives in confessing that as well, and then repent of our sins. But there is also one other part of God's plan of salvation that we must do, and that is baptism for the remission of sins. In Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, after Peter had said unto them there, you know, that God had made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, in verse 36, verse 37, that they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, Peter didn't say to them, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. He didn't say, pray a sinner's prayer. He said, verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In 1 Peter 3.21, Peter also mentioned there about the saving act of baptism. 1 Peter 3.21 states, The like figure, wherein to even baptism, doth also now save us, not to putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're not immersed in water just to clean our bodies. That's not what it's all about. But we are saved by baptism by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Well, because of God's amazing grace that is offered to us and our free will obedience, we stand in a new relationship with God, and that relationship is justified. And God does this, though we do not deserve it, and we do not earn it. So we get to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. We're going to be looking here at justification by faith. In Romans 5.1, we see that the Christian has been justified by faith. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, therefore. The word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore in a passage somewhere or in a verse, look and see what it's there for. And it may be wherefore, therefore, or for says, therefore, being justified by faith. All right, we'll go back to chapter 4. That word, therefore, takes us back to chapter 4 and the faithful, obedient trust of Abraham as our example there. Romans 4, 20 to 22 states, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So we see the word therefore taking us back there. And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore being justified by faith. 
So it goes back to Abraham's example. Well, the phrase being justified from the Greek word dikaio, we find that in Moulton's lexicon, he defines the word this way, to hold as guiltless, to accept as righteous, to justify. And this word, dikaio, is in the aorist tense, which means an action completed in the past or having been. Now, there are several blessings that come from justification. And the first one is found in this verse, and that is peace with God. So instead of being justified in Romans 5.1, it would be having been justified, a one-time act there. Well, this peace comes from the knowledge that we've been restored to our proper relationship with God. You know, whenever you look in Colossians 1, 20 to 23, Colossians 1, verses 20 to 23, it states there, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now you'll notice there that we are reconciled to God but he also gives some stipulations there in verse 23. That little word if. If you continue in the faith, continue to be faithful, grounded and settled, not being moved away from the hope of the gospel, so in other words, not being moved away from the truth. So there are those who are. And if we are not, do not continue in the faith, then we are no longer reconciled to God. But when we're reconciled, we are no longer in rebellion against God. We're no longer alienated and separated from God because we were justified by God when we obeyed the gospel. That here, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized for the remission of sins. That's, that's obeying the gospel. And after that, we have this peace with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Now, faith that does not comply with God's terms is rebellion. We have an example in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 9 to 14. 2 Kings 9, or excuse me, 5, verses 9 to 14. It says, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Right there are, were God's terms for Naaman being healed of his leprosy. Now verse 11. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. 
Well, you see, that was Naaman's plan for him being relieved of his leprosy, but that wasn't God's plan. Well, verse 12, he said, Are not Urbana and far, far rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So there's some more of what Naaman thought his relief or what God's plan should be, but that's not what God's plan was. That was rebellion against God. But he had some very wise servants, we find in verse 13. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? In other words, you know, if he had asked you to swim the Mediterranean Sea, would you not have done it? Continuing there in verse 13, How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. You know, that's all you have to do. Wash and be clean. Well, he listened. He surrendered his will to God's will, and he received the promise. Verse 14. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So when Naaman surrendered his will to God's will, then he became clean of his leprosy. The same thing is true of us and our sins. Whenever we are washed and become clean, whenever we obey God's plan for our salvation, then we will receive the promise of the forgiveness of sins. Now we want to look at two more blessings of justification, and that's found in Romans 5.2. Romans 5.2 states, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So our justification brings access to the grace of God. That's the first part of Romans 5, 2 there. It says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. The word access is translated from the Greek word prosagoge, prosagoge, pronounce that better. Thayer says that word means the act of bringing to, a moving to, access or approach. So we have the, we have, we are brought to God's grace by our faith. And then God's grace is a position to which a person is brought. John 10, 9. John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So we have to enter in to God's grace through Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 3, 18, we see that we stand in God's grace. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, made alive by the Spirit. Robertson's word picture says of that verse, quote, Grace is here present as a field into which we have been introduced, and where we stand, and we should enjoy all the privileges of this grace about us. 
And then the last part of Romans 5.2, our justification brings the hope of the glory of God. The last part of verse five, uh, verse 2 of chapter 5 says, And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, the Christian's initial joy comes when we know we have attained peace with God and have access to His grace. In Acts 8.39, there after you know, Philip and the eunuch, the event that took place there, in Acts 8.39 says, And when they were come up out of the water, in other words, Philip had baptized the eunuch, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he, that being the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. Why? Because he had attained peace with God and has accessed God's grace. In Acts 16.34, there we have the uh, Philippian jailer. And it says, And when he, the jailer, had brought them, Paul and Silas, into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now, when was he called a believer? After his baptism. In Hebrews 6, 19-20, we see that hope is a confident expectation that its end will be attained. Hebrews 6, 19-20. It says, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now you think about our hope. It says here is an anchor of the soul. Now if you've ever been in a, in a boat and you're wanting to stay in one position, you have an anchor that you cast overboard and it disappears below the water level. And then the anchor works. Well, the same thing is with our hope. It is an anchor of the soul, and you'll notice there in verse 19, it entereth into that within the veil. Our hope is in heaven. That's where our hope is based. And if we don't put our hope outside of this life, that hope, that anchor is not going to do us any good. Now, it mentions here the glory there in Romans 5, 2. Glory is from the Greek word doxa. And you look at Thayer's third definition of that word. It means splendor, brightness, the kingly majesty which belongs to him, God, as the supreme ruler. Majesty in the sense of the absolute perfection of the deity, the glory of God. And the glory of God refers to the absolute splendor and magnificence of God in which we shall dwell. In Revelation 21, verse 23, Revelation 21, 23 states, And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And one day we will personally experience God's glory. Matthew 25.31 states that. Matthew 25.31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. We will experience God's glory. In Romans 8.17, Romans 8.17 states, And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, 
that we may also be or be also glorified together. Now, something else that we are to glory in is found in Romans 5, 3, and that is we are to glory in hardship. Romans 5, 3 states, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Well, we glory in tribulations. This glory is a different word. The word is Strong says that means to boast, to vaunt in a good or bad sense. So this would be in a good sense. And that we glory in tribulations, the Greek word thlipsis. Thayer gives the definition of thlipsis as a pressing, pressing together, pressure. Metaphorically, oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress, straits. So we are to boast in tribulation in a good sense. Well, having peace with God does not mean that we will no longer face the trials and temptations of this life. We have to come to that understanding. You know, God doesn't promise us a bed of roses. No, he promises us thorns along with those roses. In James 1, verses 2 through 4, we have an example of that. James 1, 2 through 4. James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Well, tribulation fashions patience in our lives. The word patience there is translated from the Greek word hupomene, and Strong's defines hupomene this way, cheerful or hopeful endurance, constancy. We can have a cheerful or hopeful endurance through the tribulations that we face in this life, knowing that if we're faithful to God, heaven is waiting. We have spiritual strength available to us to help us overcome these trials and tribulations. An example of that is what Paul writes there in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Paul states, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, to both, uh, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So we can get through the tribulations of this life, and we get through the good times of this life through Christ who strengthens us. Well, there are additional fruits of justification found here in Romans chapter 5, verse 4. Romans 5, 4. It says there, and patience, experience, and experience hope. So patience, or our steadfastness, fashions uh, experience. The word experience there from the Greek word dokame, Thayer defines this way. Proving, trial, approved, tried character, 
a proof, a specimen of tried worth. And that's Thayer's definition. And that just simply means the word experience you could translate as the word approvedness. And our approvedness or experience fashions our hope. The word hope there, elpis. Strong's defines elpis as a primary word to anticipate, usually with pleasure. Expectation, abstract or concrete, or confidence. So the Christian comes forth stronger and purer than before if he or she responds correctly to the tribulations that come to our lives. And in James 4, 7 through 8, we find that as the Christian grows stronger in character, he or she grows closer to God. And the closer he draws to God, the more he hopes for the glory of God. Again, James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now we get to Romans 5, 5 through 8. We're going to find the power of love and one of the clearest examples of agape love. In verse 5, we find a fourth blessing of justification, and that is the assurance that the Christian's hope will not meet disappointment. Romans 5, 5. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. In Romans 9.33, Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There's that word ashamed again. And that word ashamed from the Greek word shuno, Thayer defines this way to dishonor, disgrace, to put to shame, make ashamed, to be ashamed, bless with shame. One is said to be put to shame who suffers a repulse or whom some would, or whom some hope has deceived, a false hope. But whenever we are obedient to the gospel, we obey God's plan of salvation. We live according to God's will. Our hope is not deceived. We have that patient endurance, knowing that God will bless. And the work of the Holy Spirit is relating to us God's love through his word. 1 John 4, 15. 1 John 4, 15 says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. You know, each member of the Godhead indwells us as God's word moves us and molds us to be like Christ. So here we see that God dwells in those who are faithful. In Ephesians three seventeen, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. So Christ dwells in us by faith. In Romans 8, 9, says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So we see that each member of the Godhead dwells in the faithful child of God. 
in Romans 5, 6, we find man's utter weakness and Christ's great love for us. Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Well, you might ask the question, who's the ungodly? Well, we. That's what he's stating there. We are were the ungodly. When we were without strength. Without strength there is translated from the Greek word asthenes, which Thayer defines as weak, infirm, feeble. There was no thing, nothing we could do to save us from our sins without Christ. We were without strength to save ourselves. Micah chapter 6 verse 7. Micah 6 7 says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? You know, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. There's nothing we could do. But then Christ came, and he came at the perfect time. Galatians 4 4 informs us. Galatians 4 4 informs us that but when the bullet but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. God had been preparing the world ever since the creation, about four thousand years before Christ. And four thousand years passed by and the time was right, and here came the Savior. In Ephesians one ten Ephesians 1.10, it states that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So again, the dispensation of the fullness of times. Well, in Romans 3.23, we find that Christ willingly died for us, the ungodly, to rescue us from our sins. Again, it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Brother Robert Taylor made this comment concerning Romans 3.23. He states, and I quote, Christ died for people who hated his father and him. He died for despicable and vile people. Well, those who are not faithful to God are despicable and vile people. In Romans 5.7, Paul gives an illustration to show the greatness of God's love. Romans 5, 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. You know, people don't stand in line to die for a righteous man or a good man. Very few would even do this. But Christ, according to Romans 5, 8, did what no man would ever consider doing. He died for his enemies. He died for sinners, Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies. We were sinners and Christ died. We were not just, we were not good, but Christ died for us. It says there that he commendeth his love for us. The Greek word sunatemi. There Moulton says it is in the present tense, and this is the definition. 
to place in a striking point of view to events. You see, God proved and he continues to prove his great love for us in that he gave up his only begotten son to die on our behalf. He continues to prove that. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 13, we find that God proved his great love for us by justifying us through the blood of his only begotten son. Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, <coughs> excuse me, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. In Romans 5, 9 through 11, we see the power of the blood. In verse 9, God saved us by the power of his son's blood. Romans 5, 9 states, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Well, blood was at the center of the altars in the patriarchal age. Job 1.5 is an example of that. Job 1.5 says, And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them, that being his children, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings to the, according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So blood was at the center of the altars in the patriarchal age. Blood was at the center of the altars in the Mosaic age. I mean, just one example of that over in 1 Kings 8, verse 5. 1 Kings 8, 5. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. So there was blood at the center of the altars in the Mosaic Age. And the blood of Christ is at the center of the Christian Age. Whenever you look in Hebrews 10.4, <clears throat> Hebrews 10.4 states, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. All those animals that were sacrificed, none could take away sins. And then we look at 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 states, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or lifestyle received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we were redeemed by the blood of Christ. <clears throat> a fifth blessing of justification is found in Romans 5, 9. And that fifth blessing is we are saved from God's wrath. Again, verse 9, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God's wrath. A good example of God's pure wrath is found in Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. It says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, 
If any man worship the beast in his image and receive the mark in his forehead or in his hand, these are people that are unfaithful. Let's look at it that way. The unfaithful, the same, shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for ever and ever, <coughs> and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. You could go in there and look that up. All we're looking at there is worshiping the Roman emperor and receiving the certificate that they could buy and sell because they had offered pinch of incense or offered sacrifice to the emperor. This means they were unfaithful. Now notice the power of Christ's blood. In Ephesians 1.7, we see that Christ's blood has redeeming power. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Christ's blood has reconciling power. Ephesians 2.16. Ephesians 2.16 states, and that he might reconcile both, that be Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body, that being the church, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Christ's blood has cleansing power. Acts 22.16. Acts 22.16, we have Ananias speaking to Saul of Tarsus, and he says, And now I tarest thou, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's where the cleansing power is found. And that is in baptism, not in the water, but that's where we contact the blood that does the cleansing. And Christ's blood has atoning power. Romans 5.11. Romans 5.11 states, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now or have now received the atonement. So we, his blood has atoning power. <coughs> the sixth blessing of justification is found in Romans 5.10, and that is reconciliation. Romans 5.10 states, For if, when we were enemies, in other words, we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The word reconcile from the Greek word katalasso, Thayer's definition, or his 1B definition is, return to favor with, to be reconciled to one. In other words, make friends again. We were friends with God before we reached that age of accountability. Then we became enemies of God when we sinned. But we can be made friends again through the reconciliation process. And every person was once right with God. That's found in Romans 7, 8, and 9. Romans 7, 8, and 9. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. He's talking about he had reached that age of accountability. 
and he sinned and he died spiritually. Well, when we sinned, we became enemies of God. Going back to Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 again. I'm going to reread those two verses, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is here heavy, heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. You see, every person that has reached an accountable age is either now an enemy of God or has been an enemy of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, we find that it is God that reconciles us to him, not we that reconcile ourselves to God. 2 Corinthians 5.18, the verse states, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. In Romans 8.34, we find that we are saved by his life, that being Christ's life, in that Christ continues to live and to make intercession for his people, those who are faithful to him. Romans 8.34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. <laughs> so he makes intercession for us at the right hand of God, at the throne of God. In Hebrews 7.25, Hebrews 7.25, we find there, wherefore he, that being Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There's that intercession again, saving those who come to God through Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. In Romans 5:11, we find that we can now rejoice because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Romans 5:11. And not only so, but we also join in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. You see, reconciliation is not a future consideration. It is a present reality. In Colossians 1.20, Colossians 1.20, <laughs> Paul wrote, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him, to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. So we have that peace because of reconciliation now. In Titus 1-2, we find eternal salvation is future, residing in us by hope. Titus 1-2. It says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So that salvation is future and it resides in us by hope. In Romans 3, 29 and 30, we find we can enjoy the forgiveness of our sins now when we have obeyed the gospel. Romans 3, 29 and 30 says, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. <coughs> Excuse me. 
saying it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. So in our life, if we fail to turn to Christ, we will miss the best of all possible lives here and eternal life later. Well, justification. What is justification? It is God counting a person as being righteous. And there are six blessings of, of justification found in Romans chapter 5. Number one is peace with God. Number two is access to the grace of God. Number three is the hope of the glory of God. Number four is the assurance, assurance that the Christian's hope will not meet disappointment. Number five, the fifth blessing, we are saved from God's wrath. And then the sixth blessing, we are reconciled to God. God makes us friends with him again. Well, we're going to stop right there in the lesson today, and we'll pick up there in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, Lord willing, next time. So again, this is Don Boyd. I want to thank you for tuning in to be with us. Look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Way Media by visiting our website, BibleWayMedia.org. You can find all of our podcasts on all major podcast platforms. As always, we thank you for listening.